Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, it's the fat episode. All right, Nicole, the fat episode. That's what we're going to roll with for the title of this episode. Okay, so we're in it. We're talking all about fat. We're talking all about fat. We're talking a lot about fat. And this topic kind of makes my head spin. Yes, I know. Why? Because there's controversy as with everything in nutrition. But I think with fat, especially within the last few years, you know, it's that's not in the last few years. People well, argue, yeah, yeah, arguing okay. about so, carbs. All right. So argue about fat. Yeah, people argue about everything. But it's like, well, you should eat cholesterol. You shouldn't eat cholesterol. Like the, the recommendations from top down yeah, have evolved different. and changed. And I think this is one of the reasons why people are so confused. And they're like, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, fuck it. Just throw it right out the window. I'm not going to listen to that shit because they're going to change their minds about it again anyway. So, you know, and when you dive into it, there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot of research that still needs to be performed. And when you look at the studies, you really have to look at the context of these studies and how they were performed. So it's we're going to get into that and we're going to get into some of the controversy controversies. And I'm going to tell you where my current stance is on some of these topics related to fat. And I'm going to give you the reasons why that's my stance on these topics. And obviously, as research shifts and changes, there are going to be some things that come up where I might say, hey, look, there's new research that came up, you know, down down the road that shows, you know, that's pretty strong that shows, okay, well, maybe we should change the way that we look at fat and cholesterol and heart disease and all the things associated with eating fat. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you also say you talk about it from a research standpoint? I always think about it from the state of the human body, like how healthy people are kind of the other way around. And you're doing research based on people that are now much heavier than they were before and a much more sedentary lifestyle than they were before. So people are changing. Is, is that because they're of what we're eating or because of the lifestyle that they're living? like which comes first and how do you know? And the other piece to that is every single human body is slightly different. So depending on what my genetics are and how I live, it's going to affect differently the way people's bodies respond to whether it's a high fat diet, low fat diet, high carb, low carb. Like we keep arguing over things that are not consistent, like they're, they're always changing. So the reason why they argue about it, I think, is because things are always changing. Well, I but I would argue to your point that, you know, you say, well, everybody's different, but that's why larger sample sizes of people in research is always better than yes, smaller sample size. That's why, like, if you do a meta analysis or a systemic of review course. and yeah. you combine all of these studies and you pull all this data, yeah, then yeah. you're like, all right, well, so instead of a few studies of, let's say, 50 to 100 people. Now right. we've got 5,000 individuals over 10 studies or 15 studies 
that we've just looked at and pulled together and we can say, okay, well, statistically speaking, you know, how can we kind of make this generalize for everybody, even though we do know that there is going to be, there are going to be some outliers in that information that you're gathering, but it gives you a better picture when you have more people. Yeah, obviously. I totally agree. I'm just saying, I think it's hilarious. I know our listeners are probably going to even laugh at me saying that, but I think it's hilarious the amount of arguments that happen surrounding nutrition. I think a lot of it doesn't even need to be hashed out. It seems pretty simple to me, but well, no, I do think that some of it needs to be I hashed mean, out. Come now, on. Okay. So there are two things that I will say. One, I think oftentimes the end consumer of the content, right? And mm-hmm. we're I guess we're talking like, you know, nowadays it's social media content. The end consumer of the content is confused for one of two reasons. They're generally confused about topics surrounding nutrition because let's be real science. There's more that we don't know than there is that we do know. And I think that the best practitioners of nutrition are the ones that really realize that and understand that and Mm -hmm. don't speak in definitive language and say, well, this is it. And this is what everybody should do. So I think people are confused because generally science is confused. And it's 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 where they're constantly changing. Okay, well, you can't eat cholesterol because that's going to raise your blood cholesterol. And then years later, oh, well, you know what? Actually, eating cholesterol doesn't really have this big impact on your blood cholesterol. So you can eat cholesterol. So it's like, well, do I eat the whole egg or do I not eat the whole egg? Because eggs are, quote, high in cholesterol. Right. Mm -hmm. So the information and the message keeps changing. And that is confusing for the end user. And then the flip Mm -hmm. side, the other piece to that is that I also think that there are just a bunch of quacks on the Internet that have no idea what they're talking about. And they're pushing out information and making matters even worse. Well, that's kind of my point. There there are two sides to that. I think one side is a legit side from a scientific perspective is that we have more about the human body and food to uncover. And the Mm -hmm. other side to that is. We just have people that are just bogus and need to just stay, stay in their lane, like go do (laughs) something else. I don't know. Go become an electrician or something like stay out of the field of nutrition because you're ruining it for all of us. But that's kind of my point. I feel like the confusion comes from too much unknown, as you're saying, and then also too many, too many people in the kitchen. (laughs) Like you get out because you're making things more complicated. Yeah, making things more complicated. Yeah. And then it's really hard. Like the general consumer is trying to figure out how to shift through all the bullshit and get to the, just the real basic stuff. As we've discussed many other times on the podcast is if you stick to the basics, you you really can't go wrong. So let's talk about fat. All right. So let's start with what fat is. Fat is a fuel source for the body, similar to the way carbs are. Mm hmm. So you eat carbs, it's beneficial to your workout, your energy systems, right? You've got different energy systems. You've got aerobic and anaerobic and anaerobic will predominantly use carbs and your aerobic uh, is going to predominantly use uh, fat for fuel. The difference between them is really when you need each source. So generally speaking, if you're at rest and you're sitting on the couch doing nothing, Mm -hmm. your body is using 50 to 60% of its energy from fat during that resting state. During high intensity exercise, your body will switch to using carbs because carbs are a quicker source of fuel. So 
We've talked about this before, and I'll just give you the quick overview. You've got your phosphagen system or your phosphocreatine system, and that's where creatine comes in, right? You consume creatine, it binds to phosphate, it donates phosphate to ADP to make ATP, which is energy. Uh, and that is quick. That is like 10 seconds or less of activity. So if you're doing power cleans, uh, if you're doing a push press, if you're doing a lot of weightlifting for a short period of time, those short bursts, like a sprinter is going to use predominantly uh, creatine phosphate. Then you're going to go into more burning carbs for energy where you are in a longer period of time, maybe 30 seconds. You're in a longer period of time. And then your body switches from that phosphagen system to primarily your carbohydrates. You're still burning some fat for fuel, but you're primarily in that uh, anaerobic metabolism where you're using carbohydrates for energy. And then we switch into like, if you're somebody like a marathon runner, although you are using right carb loading is a thing, but you're doing lower intensity, longer duration, lower heart rate. That is where you're going to predominantly use your fat for your exercise. And when you're at rest, you're predominantly using fat. So fat is an important fuel source. The interesting thing is technically speaking, do you need to eat fat in order to have or use fat for energy? Probably not because you've got this massive storage of fat cells where you can tap into that. But there are reasons that you do still need to eat fat because it's not just about an energy source. It's also about the structural integrity of your body's cells. So this is where cholesterol comes in because fat gets processed by your liver and packaged into these little fat particles of cholesterol. Essentially, cholesterol is a it's a sterile. It's a sterile molecule with that packages fat. And it's like a transport molecule. It takes it to your cells and it helps to rebuild and restructure your cells. And it's important for the function of every cell in your body. The other piece to fat and why we need to consume fat is because it's important for production of hormones, specifically steroid hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. What we could find over long periods of time is if you're on a fat, a low fat diet, super low fat diet, like let's say sub 10% of your total caloric intake mm -hmm. could affect your testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. So that could lead to hormone imbalance. So this is one of the reasons why we can't just look at it from an energy source and, and say, okay, well, we've got this storage. Why do I need to eat fat? Because we still need to eat fat to be processed by the liver, to make cholesterol, which is a, important for your cells and is important for hormone production. So it also has other aspects of the body functions. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get into how much fat the body actually needs in terms of dietary fat. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, adequate fat is going to be anywhere from 20 to 35% of your total calories. So a 2000 calorie diet will have anywhere from, let's kind of round it off, 45 grams of fat to 75 grams of fat. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the range. Now, there are some exceptions to this. If you're doing like a mini cut or let's say contest prep, Nicole, we talk about bodybuilding community all yeah. the time, contest prep for a short period of time. You want to drive that fat low to drive the calories down because mm -hmm. keep in mind when we're looking at macronutrients and we're looking at calories as they pertain to macronutrients, a gram of carbs is equivalent to four calories. 
A gram of protein is equivalent to four calories. A gram of fat is a gram of fat is equivalent to nine calories. And then we have alcohol, which is technically a macronutrient, which is seven calories. And actually, it's interesting. I've had a, this question asked a lot lately. Do I count my alcohol as carbs or fat? I'm like, well, oh, technically, really? alcohol, technically alcohol is alcohol. But I, I kind of say, well, look at it calorically speaking and just take those cal- calories from whatever category you want. If you're talking about, well, I need to hit this calorie goal for the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's my that's my thought on that. Generally, for me, I'll probably take it from carbs. That's what I do. Yeah. But the exception is for a short period of time, if you're trying to dramatically drive down calories for a short period of time, I really have to emphasize this because. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you can't be in (laughs) in a super high deficit for a longer period of time. You don't want that. You're going to have some metabolic adaptation, some unwanted adaptation if you're doing that. So for a short period of time, you can drive fat lower, maybe 10 to 15 percent for like a month Mm -hmm. at a time. But in the long period of time, like I said, it's going to affect your hormones. So you don't want to stay in that zone where you're doing super low fat for a while. And then the other exception to percentage of fat is keto. If you're doing a ketogenic diet, you want to have probably around 70% of your diet coming from fat because you're going to want to be super low carb and then a moderate amount of protein. Mm Because if you're doing a high amount of protein, that may affect you you may go through gluconeogenesis, break down amino acids, turn them into uh, glucose. And that might be unfavorable for your body staying in that ketogenic state. Those are kind of the exceptions. But generally speaking, if I'm building a plan for somebody, they're going to be looking at being anywhere from 20 to 35 percent fat from total calories. Yep. So then that brings me to this kind of, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit from, I guess, like a health perspective. Then we go into like where low fat even started from. Yeah, that was my question. Remember you and I were talking and I was like, where did this even begin? This whole low fat idea, I guess. The whole low fat kind of paradox thing going on. Yeah, because so, you 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 have heard it so much that it's the only way to be. Yeah. And I think we've shifted a lot away from this. Well, absolutely. But because what essentially in the mid 1950s, Ansel Keys, who was a physiologist who studied the influence of diet on health, He had this thing called the fat hypothesis, and it was based on epidemiological data. If you look at certain countries and you say these countries have a low incidence of heart disease and obesity and all the things associated metabolic syndrome, all these things. And these countries here have a higher incidence. So what's the difference between the countries that have a low incidence of heart disease and the countries that have a high incidence of heart disease? And what he found was that high fat diets were correlated with cardiovascular disease through an epidemiological study that he performed called the seven country study. So the seven country study, he just basically concluded that the studies that consumed higher amounts of fat, they had higher incidence of heart disease and the studies that consumed low fat diets had a lower incidence of heart disease. There are some critics of this information all throughout history. I mean, we're talking from the fifties to now. That would say that he kind of cherry picked which countries to include based on, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. statistical significance. It's like there were some places around the world that they consumed higher fat diets and they still had a lower incidence of heart disease. So, you know, in looking at that, it's like, okay, well, does this really paint the whole picture? And what happened was the industry shifted along with this research, right? The government looked at this and said, okay, well, we need to push low fat Mm -hmm. diets. And then 
the government says that and industry follows and industry said, OK, well, we need to push low fat products because, mm-hmm. you know, now there's this big surge and everybody wants this low fat stuff. The issue with pushing low fat products is what we've seen through history is it didn't help. Rates of heart disease and obesity still went up. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why rates of heart disease and obesity went up is because, well, if you're going to replace fat, if you're going to take fat out of food, you can't just take fat out of food. It's not going to taste good. So what are you going to do? You're going to add sugar to that food mm-hmm. and the calories in the food. They didn't go down. And from what we know about Western culture and the American people is that they generally just eat way too many calories. Yeah. So with a lot of these foods, calories still continued to rise. Yeah. And therefore, heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity also still continued to rise. So the fat hypothesis, it didn't really paint the whole picture. So what I'll say is this. There are two things that matter when it comes to cardiovascular disease, when it comes to food or total calories and the type of fat that you're eating is what we find later, because his research didn't really focus on type of fat. It just focused on well, who eats more fat and who doesn't. So type of fat matters. And then from a lifestyle perspective, stress, lack of sleep, refined sugar, processed foods, right? Though all of those things matter in terms of heart disease, cholesterol, risk, diabetes, your body has to be able to process all of these things, not just food. And Nicole, this is where you and I kind of talk about primary and secondary foods. What are Mm -hmm. your stressors? We've also talked about your stress cup, how full is it? Because we know people can have perfect cholesterol their entire life. Yeah but still have a heart attack. And that person was wildly stressed out. And I think in this country specifically, Mm -hmm. we're a high stress society, especially here in in New York. Like it's just go, go, go. I go to other parts of the world or or other parts of the country even. And it's, I'll give you a perfect example. I was in Costa Rica Mm -hmm. and every time we sat down at a restaurant, I'm like looking, I'm like, it's been like 30 minutes and I haven't gotten my meal yet. I just ordered this shit a half hour ago because I'm so used to <laughs> yeah, the fast paced lifestyle, which probably isn't good for me. Right. And then I'm looking around and all these people are here patiently waiting and sitting and like they're just having a conversation, having fun. Like, mm-hmm. I think we've got it all wrong here. Well, absolutely. If I'm Italian, we sit down for dinner. There's like multiple things before you even actually get to dinner. But on top of that, it's a time to chat and catch up and enjoy each other's company and, you know, catch up. But we don't do that anymore. Half the people are eating in their car on the way to work. But that's a whole whole nother story. Yeah, I don't really doesn't matter what type of fat you're eating if you're driving and eating it at the same time. Yeah. So the other piece, Nicole, is also the calories. Yeah. And this is where the calories come in, because There's this thought or has been this thought that has been perpetuated that eating fat means that you're going to store more fat. Yep. But that's not really how the body works. The body works in terms of energy balance, right? It's seco calories in versus calories out. Mm -hmm. If your intake is lower than your expenditure, then you're going to lose body fat. If your intake matches your expenditure, then you're going to maintain your weight. If your intake is above your expenditure, then you are going to gain weight. And there are certain instances where you want your intake to be above your expenditure when you're trying to build muscle. And if you're trying mm-hmm. to lose body fat, doesn't matter. And I think if anything, keto has proven this, 
that you could be in a calorie deficit, eat a high fat diet and lose body fat. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have to put it in perspective that it's not necessarily it's not fat that's making you fat. Now, I will say fat, if you're not paying attention to the fat that you're eating, you're more likely to eat more calories because a gram of fat has more calories than carbs or protein. But on the flip side, from a behavioral standpoint, which I think we're also going to get into a little bit later when we talk about the dairy piece, mm -hmm. I think from a behavioral standpoint, fat is a little bit more satiating, which also might be argued in the research. But for most people, they say, hey, when I eat higher fat diets, I tend to eat less, especially people doing keto. They tend to be like, well, my appetite is suppressed and I feel good and I'm not too hungry so I can eat less food and I'm not craving things. So there's that piece of that. Now, from a research perspective, when we look at eating fat versus different macronutrient distributions, right? Mm -hmm. what, what we find, generally speaking, is that low fat diets, they actually seem to be slightly better in terms of outcome of short term weight loss. However, it's not really statistically significant. So I would say that regardless of what your macronutrient distribution is back to this point, calories are the most important thing that matter, even though fat, low fat fare slightly better in the research. It's like a smidge better. Like you're talking about like a quarter of a pound. Like it's not that much of a difference where we yeah. can actually say like, well, low fat is better for fat loss. What we find is that regardless of your uh, macronutrient distribution, whether you're doing high fat, low fat, high carb, low carb, it doesn't really matter. What's going to matter most. And Nicole, you and I talk about this all the time is your ability to comply to that strategy that you have. And one mm -hmm. of uh, some of the factors that fall into your ability to comply are going to be how satiating is that macronutrient composition. So this is why we talk about protein often, because increasing your protein intake is going to be the most satiating, even more so than increasing your fat intake. So it's going to be important to use protein as your staple, as the rock or anchor of your diet. And then build your macronutrient composition outside of that protein. However, you kind of see fit in terms of both your ability to comply with it, stay on track, your hunger, your satiety, your energy levels, and then also your workout performance is something that you want to look at when you're talking about, okay, well, does this, is this macronutrient uh, distribution optimal for me? I'll give you a perfect example. When I did a keto diet versus eating higher carbs, I just performed better in the gym eating more carbs. And I think probably majority of people can say that same thing. Yeah. I do believe that workouts are a big piece to that when it comes to the macronutrient makeup. You know, I mean, I've never really had any client that I could say was on a high fat, low carb that performed well in the gym. That's just me, but I'm sure anything is possible. Plus I love carbs. Yeah. I think, I think carbs are better for workout performance generally. Mm -hmm. All right. So then we get into a little bit about types of fat and how to incorporate different types of fat in your diet. And this is where, from a research standpoint, it starts to get a little bit confusing because there are a few different schools of thought on this. And again, like I said, I'll tell you what my general recommendation is based on the current information that we have. So generally speaking, the recommendation from top down, the, the dietary guidelines and American Heart Association and, and from years and years of research is saturated fat. I'm going to start there because that's really the biggest one that matters in terms of risk is keeping saturated fat below 10% of your total intake. 
that's going to be the saturated fat piece is going to be what's mostly or closely associated with risk of cardiovascular disease. Are there other factors? Yeah, absolutely. Stress, lack of sleep, the lifestyle. Are you exercising? Are you not exercising? Do you have like inflammatory stuff going on? Are you eating things that are, are you probably shouldn't be eating that may impact your your GI system? And that in turn is going to impact the rest of your body because, you know, as um, Hippocrates said, all things start in the gut. And I think that it's that's an interesting statement because we've gone so far away from that. And I think Hippocrates was a man that was ahead of his time in terms of the thought process around nutrition. And we've gone away from that. And now we're going more towards that. Like research is going more towards that. Like if you've got inflammation in your gut, it's going to lead to potentially systemic inflammation yet to be determined. We still need more research in this area, but I think there's definitely something there. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things that are going to influence. And then, you know, high sugar intake in a calorie surplus. Uh, if you're eating a lot of fructose, that's going to be metabolized differently than uh, other types of sugar. So, you know, watching out for that is definitely important. But what I'll say is from a saturated fat standpoint, where do saturated fats come from? They mostly come from animal sources, but they also come from coconut. And this is the argument now of is the saturated fat from coconut the same as the saturated fat from animal sources? So you've got different types of fat in coconut, but the major uh, medium chain triglyceride in coconut is lauric acid. And the major saturated fat in animal products is palmitic acid. Now, lauric acid is technically a medium chain triglyceride, while palmitic acid is a long chain triglyceride. But structurally, they're both saturated. And what makes a saturated fat is it's saturated with hydrogens. It doesn't have double bonds. So that's the difference between saturated, unsaturated, let's say monounsaturated and polyunsaturated. So a saturated fat doesn't have any double bonds. And because of that, that's why saturated fats are more dense at room temperature, like butter, for example. Yep. Or if you notice the jar of coconut oil that you're eating, that is going to be, it's not going to be liquid at room temperature. Yeah. And your unsaturated fats, because of those double bonds, it's less hydrogenated. Um, so what that's going to do is it's going to be like more flexible. So it's going to be more liquid at room temperature. And the difference between mono and polyunsaturated fats are polyunsaturated have multiple double bonds. And then monounsaturated only has one double bond. So your polyunsaturated fats, what you'll find is uh, that there are two important ones, which we're going to get into omega-3 and omega-6. And then your monounsaturated fa fats are the ones that you'll find in like nuts and seeds and stuff like that. But let's stay on track with the saturated fat thing. So generally speaking, 10% or less, basically limiting your intake of saturated fat is shown to be beneficial in terms of heart disease risk. Here's the thing with saturate with with coconut is when we look at coconut from epidemiological studies, we say, OK, well, populations that eat higher amounts of coconut fat, they have a lower risk. The issue is that this doesn't really account for, again, epidemiological studies are probably one of the weakest in terms of showing evidence. So essentially what you have is you've got like, let's say you have a case study. It started, everything starts with a case study and you have multiple case studies. Nicole, you and I have talked about this like we see case studies basically like, I mean, we don't publish them, but 
we see yeah, case studies all the time with clients that they have certain things going on. We remove something and then we find that that's helpful. And then we do that across other clients that experience the same things. And mm-hmm. then we find, oh, okay, well, there's a trend here, right? And that's basically yeah. how research kind of starts. It starts from practitioner on. So the mm-hmm. practitioner see enough of this stuff and then research goes, okay, well, this is something we need to look at. And generally, if we look at epidemiological studies, we're studying certain populations and their lifestyles and their food and what they eat. And we're saying, okay, well, what are some general trends that these countries do that have a low risk for something? And these countries do that have a higher risk for something. And then we're singling certain things out. The issue with that is that we're singling things out and we have to look at overall lifestyle. So it's not very strong evidence. Then we get into randomized control trials where we say, okay, well, we're going to do this versus a placebo, or we're going to do this diet versus this diet. And that has more strength. And then once we have enough of that, uh, those randomized controlled trials, then we can do a systemic review and say, okay, let's pull all this data together. And then systemic review is going to be really a bigger, larger sample size. And then that's going to say, okay, well, we can almost conclusively say that this is the case. So epidemiological studies, when it comes to coconut, they show that populations that eat higher amounts of coconut fat, they have a lower risk of heart disease. The issue is that this doesn't really account for differences in other things that they're intaking, like fiber or their general lifestyle. Are they more active than we are? Or they're more active than other populations? And I think the U.S. is more sedentary than most places. I actually looked up this data before we got on this to record this podcast because I'm like, well, who's kind of the leader in heart disease right now? And I think we're like, number four or five or something like that. Number one last year in 2020 was actually China. Oh, really? Which is, I thought we were the highest, but China was actually- I thought we were at least top two. So Yeah, we're we're like in the top, we're probably in the top five, (laughs) um, you know, in terms of like per capita. But Mm -hmm. anyway, so I digress. Uh, The the whole thing with coconut, so the type of coconut, it's it's potentially thought that the type of coconut that they're eating in- other countries are different because we're eating refined processed coconut oil. Yeah. We're not sitting here and like cutting down a coconut from a tree yeah, off the tree, <laughs> breaking it open and actually eating the flesh, which may potentially be more fibrous. I don't really know, but there's going to be obviously a difference there too. If you're just extracting the oil from the coconut and using that versus eating the meat or like pet pressed coconut cream, mm-hmm. which by the way, coconut is literally my least fit. Like you could tell me coconut oil will cure cancer and I'll still (laughs) never eat it. It is like, there is such a uh, specific taste when it comes to coconut where I'm like, this is, it's the most, and my, my taste buds are so sensitive to it. Like I've had people be like, Hey, I had this, uh, like a lot of the paleo recipes that use uh, coconut oil. Yeah. I have this, uh, these coconut oil paleo cookies. Or they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll say taste it. They'll, yeah. So they'll say I have these coconut, co- not coconut. They'll say I have these paleo cookies and immediately my brain defaults to, oh, no, there's coconut and it. it's disgusting. <laughs> and they'll be like, but you don't even taste it. Yeah. See, I taste it. And everyone around me is like, you can't taste it. I promise. Yeah. And I'll take a bite in that first bite. I'm like, Bleh. it's like yeah. I can't eat this. It's disgusting. <laughs> oh, I don't I, I don't like coconut in my chocolate. Like like it's a it all depends on your palate, too. Right. Like, I'm not a coconut fan yeah, like, in I'm, general. Like, it's I, not I, my thing. I don't like coconut. And then there are people that love coconut, which actually yeah. is interesting. I just bought a pre-workout that was the flavor was tiger's blood. And I'm like, oh, it looks like it's like a picture of like, that's a, a name of it. 
it's, it's the name of the, the taste. And then I'm like, it looks like a it looks like a fruity tropical. I'm like, yeah, oh, this will be good. And then as soon as I drank it, I was like, there's coconut. And then I looked up Tiger's Blood flavor. Yeah. And it's like a bunch of fruits with a hint of coconut. And I'm like, to me, it's not a hint of coconut. To me, yeah. coconut is overpowering all the other tastes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm yeah. like, I can't drink this shit. So yeah. I anyway, I went and I bought like a Gushers flavored pre-workout instead. Yeah. At, you know, I'd rather have that. <laughs> I like Gushers. It's nostalgic. It reminds me of my childhood. Yeah. So we talked about epidemiological studies when it comes to the coconut. But when we look at the meta-analyses of coconut, so there's a meta-analysis of 16 trials where coconut oil was found to... Now, it's interesting because coconut oil is found to increase both LDL cholesterol, which is the quote-unquote bad, and also increase HDL cholesterol levels compared with non-tropical vegetable oils like sunflower, canola oil, which or olive oil, olive oil being predominantly omega-9 polyunsaturated fatty acid, uh, sunflower and canola oil being predominantly omega-6 fatty acid. And we're going to get into the, the difference between the essential fatty, fatty acids soon. But coconut oil is shown to increase total cholesterol by about 15 points, LDL by 10 points, and HDL, um, high, de high density lipoprotein by about four points. So coconut oil also increased these values when compared with another tropical oil being palm oil. So when you compare those two, total cholesterol increased by 25 points, LDL by 20 points, and HDL by three points when you're comparing uh, coconut oil to palm oil. Also, the other thing is that people would argue since lauric acid is a medium chain triglyceride that it, it acts differently. It gets absorbed uh, a lot quicker and gets used for energy right away versus palmitic acid, which is a long chain fatty acid because long chain fatty acids, you're more likely to store and process differently. But what we find is that lauric acid being a medium chain triglyceride that acts differently than other medium chain triglycerides actually digest and absorb at a similar rate to palmitic acid. So I don't see much of a difference between the saturated fat coming from animal sources versus the saturated fat coming from coconut. Mm -hmm. And that recommendation is basically as of right now, backed by the American Heart Association in their scientific advisory statement, they recommend limiting consumption of all saturated fats and replacing them with polyunsaturated fats. This is interesting because I've recently done some research on this for my school studies is the difference when you're replacing saturated fats with other fats in the diet. So when you're replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, whether it be omega-6, omega-3, you tend to have a more favorable outcome in terms of reducing risk than you do even monounsaturated fat. So, and this was something that I had recently learned in the studies that I had looked at because I was like, oh, well, you want to consume predominantly monounsaturated fats, but actually you want to consume more polyunsaturated fats because those are more beneficial for your heart. And also replacing fats with carbs is not shown to decrease risk at all. And in some cases might actually increase your risk. So what you're replacing saturated fats with is important. And this is where we get into some controversy in the research. So there are a couple of things when it comes to saturated fat that we want to look at. The first thing that we want to look at is when you're removing saturated fat, what are you replacing with? Yeah. Also, what some people will argue with saturated fat is, well, we're, we have to look at the overall diet. And some of these studies are limited in terms of looking at the overall diet. So if you're just looking at saturated fat consumption versus if you're looking at saturated fat consumption 
in addition to high carb consumption, that 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 may be more risk. And maybe if you just are doing, let's say, a low carb diet with saturated fat being higher, maybe you're at lower risk. The other thing that we're looking at when we're looking at saturated fat in the research is, and this I think we need a lot more research on. Nicole, you know how, you remember when we had Dr. Applebaum on the show? Yep. The cardiologist, and we talked about particle testing. Mm-hmm. So basically what the thought is with particle testing is not all LDL is created equal. And there is some data to support that consuming saturated fats may increase larger, puffier LDL cholesterol and not necessarily increase the smaller, denser particles of LDL. So this is something that we need to look at too. Well, what we look at when we look at cholesterol, and I'm sure everybody can kind of relate to this. When you go to your doctor and your doctor says, I'm testing your LDL, generally what they check is LDL and they check HDL. And then maybe you'll see a VLDL on there, very low density lipoprotein. And what we look at there is that that's all we're looking at. We're not looking at particle sizes of of LDL and seeing all across the spectrum, like, well, what do your particles look like to see if you are at greater risk? So we need more information on the specific type of LDL particles. And I do think that we need to move in the direction of more physicians testing particle size, Mm -hmm. not just from a research standpoint. I think we need to just overall be looking at particle testing, and that's going to give us a more accurate picture. So I'm curious about that. But what I will say is with the general, with all the information that we have on it, I will, I will say that consuming a diet lower in saturated fat does decrease total LDL. Whether it doesn't matter the particle size, it decreases total LDL. So it would be wise from a risk standpoint to decrease saturated fat because you're going to lower LDL, which is correlated with heart disease and risk. Yeah. It's like we talk about with a stress cup. When you talk about your risk cup, <laughs> like it's the same thing. You have layers of risk that build up. And when that risk overflows in the cup, then you're going to be in trouble. So it's all about balance. Yeah. So, and Nicole, this is the same thing where we get into on the dairy topic, because you had asked before we put this episode together. Well, I have a lot of clients. I always go to Nicole for the, well, what are clients, what are common questions for clients? Mm -hmm. And like, what do we need to answer? Because if our clients are having those questions and chances are the rest of our audience probably has questions about it too. So one of the questions that Nicole brought up was low fat versus full fat dairy. And I've seen people say, well, low, full fat is better. It's the way to go. I have some thoughts about dairy in general, where I think more people are lactose intolerant than people that know that they're lactose intolerant, Mm -hmm. or they either have a lactose intolerance or a dairy allergy or a issue with the the protein, specifically casein in milk. That's why you have like the difference between A1, A2 casein, right? And people that have A2 casein, they fare better than people who have milk that comes from cows that produce both A1 and A2. Um, I think we should probably do like a, maybe a social media post on this. Yeah, so have to definitely. dive a little bit more into the research on that area, but I have a thought on dairy that I just honestly, personally don't think that adult humans should be really drinking milk. I mean, realistically, well, what other animal do you know that drinks milk beyond childhood? Yeah. Beyond well, I being think a the baby? question, uh, yes, the question really 
comes from more from a fat loss standpoint. Like, okay, if I eat full fat dairy, am I going to get fat? Or is that the reason why I'm, I can't get my body fat down or I can't lose weight? That's usually the question. And then the second part of that question is, well, if I eat low fat, what's the difference? And will it really make a difference in my goals? I mean, obviously the answer is, <laughs> we it have to look at, it depends. It depends. It's really hard to answer picture. that, but we have to look at the whole, yeah, you have to look at the whole picture. And a lot of that, when I say that, like everything else, my answer is it always depends. But when I say that, there's like this, <laughs> this look of disappointment, like I did not give them the answer they wanted and or it, it wasn't a fast solution to whatever they consider this as the problem. It's the same thing with gluten. Like, should I have gluten? I'm like, well, if you don't have an issue with gluten, I really don't think you should take it out. But everybody thinks they have an issue with gluten because they think that it's going to create weight loss. Like those types of myths, I guess, are, are what this, this question comes along. And then the other part is, should I have dairy if I'm trying to lose weight? Like it's more about weight, the weight loss aspect. And we all know that it's, it's not just one particular food or low fat versus full fat. That's going to be the one thing that makes or breaks, whether you lose weight or lose body fat. There's so much more to it than that. So it depends. It's like in context, how much are you drinking? We do have the saturated right. fat component to look at. So full fat milk is obviously it's an animal product. So it's going to be higher in palmitic acid. It's going to be higher in saturated fat. So from a risk standpoint, I will say it may be wise to consume less of it, lower, lower fat or, or less of it. Right. But from a health standpoint, and this is where kind of the argument comes in, like higher dairy fat may decrease the risk for diabetes and obesity. Right. So it'll obesity, it'll decrease the risk for uh, putting on excess body fat. And I think part of the reason is because higher fat milk may be more satiating. So well, my thing with that is what's the trigger line, right? So like a trigger line for me is you have full fat dairy once a week and it's nothing. It doesn't trigger more cravings. It doesn't create any issues with your digestive system. It doesn't make you less hungry, more hungry. You're basically just say the satiety level is normal. It's balanced within your meal plan. There's no trigger response to that to ricochet into other things. Same thing if you have well, low but fat. But here's the thing, Nicole. So to your point with the low fat that you were about to get into is that mm -hmm. if the low fat milk isn't satiating, right? So I think the, the conversation here is having full fat milk going to get you to eat less total calories for the day. Right. Right. And whatever the, you're eating, there's should... a there's a thought that it'll decrease your risk. And I think because it will decrease your calories because right, it's more satiating. Right. right. So that, that's the trigger risk. If but then eat the low fat. But then the flip side of that is we're also looking at, well, what if you have low fat milk and you're accounting for having more protein and more healthy fats in your diet? Right. Mm -hmm. So this is where we have to look at. We can't just look at a single food and say, well, this is bad for you because, you know, it's interesting because yeah. this conversation, Nicole, reminds me of every time that a client has told me, well, is this specific food a bad food? Is this good or is this bad? Yeah. And my answer to that is always, well, it depends. I can't make that judgment unless I'm looking at your whole dietary intake. So yeah. you can be look, you can be eating a specific food that you may think is quote unquote bad, but your diet looks amazing and it could be good in the context of your diet. So it really depends what you're doing throughout the day. Like I can't really say whether you should be having full fat milk 
versus low fat milk. I think to even argue that point is is kind of annoying because it's like, well, do whatever you want that gets you to have a healthy lifestyle. And well, this is why I brought the question <laughs> for this episode is because the basically, like I said, clients get disappointed when I go, well, let's take a look at it. And to your point, you just made a few minutes ago about dairy in general, people maybe being lactose intolerant and they don't know if you follow the trigger line, or at least that's what I call it. That's not a very fancy term, but that's what I call it. You can decide, like you can figure that out with the client. Okay. Have, I have full fat. My stomach's bloated after 20 minutes. I don't feel good. Like there can be, there can be symptoms that come from that and, or the low fat. I have no symptoms. I feel great. I'm satiated. Everything's fine. And then that could be the complete opposite. So my whole point about fat in general is while we have to follow research and we have to know what has generalized good, um, good practices and, you know, in, in terms of nutrition and, and uh, education, we also have to look at what the individual person can do and maintain and adhere to, and then how it affects their body within that. Yeah, ultimately, it always comes down to the individual. It's just that's the reason why, like, even though I don't like dairy in general for people, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you the reason behind that. The reason behind that is because people only associate dairy with GI discomfort, yeah, right? with gastrointestinal yeah. discomfort. I'm fat. I feel fatter, bloated. I I'm mm-hmm. farting like flatulence. Right. So <laughs> they, they only associate it with that. And the, the other things associated with that is I will say that I think it's tied to inflammatory response elsewhere in the body. And yeah, there are many congestion. people and there are many people that will argue research and until they're blue in the face and tell me, well, research says X, Y and Z. I will say that I have seen enough people in practice that mm-hmm. either have acne or eczema or some mm-hmm. type of inflammatory response, yeah. right? When I have dairy personally, I get sinus congestion. I get inflamed uh, nasal cavity or sinus cavity, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is not a placebo effect because, I mean, for me, it was the opposite. I cut it out when I realized, wow, this is what's causing what yeah. I've been having basically my entire adult life. And I've seen so many people like that, that I just think that dairy in general, the research needs to catch up. Like I said, the practitioners lead the research and I've seen it enough. And other practitioners that I've spoken to that are on the ground floor have seen it enough to say, well, listen, I don't care if the research is caught up yet. There's There's something, something there. There's some link with people consuming dairy, whether it be lactose or a specific type of protein, the whey protein in it, or A2 or A1, sorry, A1 casein, right? There's definitely a link there with people with acne and uh, what do they call it? Atopic uh, atopic dermatitis, which is uh, eczema, Mm -hmm. right? Things like that, that are worsened by them consuming dairy. And those are other symptoms that they need to be looking at other than just your GI discomfort. Like if I drink milk, I'm going to run to the bathroom. I think there's more to it than that. And I think that that evidence needs to catch up to what the practitioners are seeing. Yeah, I think what all those things that you're describing are the slower, more steady, low symptomatic things that happen in the body before it becomes something really disruptive, like running to the bathroom and, you know, having to eliminate if it ends up being that at all. Right. Right. Exactly. So when you say people are more lactose intolerant, maybe than they think it's because they're not having the major disruption. They're having these tiny little things that are uncomfortable 
like a pimple or acne or wheezing or tiny things, nasal congestion. And they don't think that it has anything to do with it because it's really not disruptive in life, like yeah, digestive yeah, but issues. It's not, disruptive. Then, it's not disruptive right now. Right now. Think about it. You drink a glass of milk every single day and then you have the small, low grade inflammation right. over, over a long time. period of time. How's that going to affect your health long term? Those are the right. things that we need to be considering. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to say with in, in regards to the question at, in general, which should you have is it really depends on the person, depends on how your body responds to it. But I think listening to clients in terms of what they know for sure about their body, people really do know if you listen to them from a coaching aspect and piece together some of the things that maybe they're not really are really not loud just yet, but could potentially be an issue down the line. That's all. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'll give you an example of conversation with a client. Client A that I had experience with, increase your protein intake. Okay. I increased my protein intake. Like you said, now I have more acne and I think it's the protein. And I said, well, it's impossible that it, it can't be the protein. So I troubleshoot. <laughs> what type and of protein? <laughs> I troubled, troubleshoot and I'm like, well, you're having more protein powder and supplementing it in to hit your protein goal. Mm -hmm. And now you're experiencing more acne. So it's not the protein, the amount of protein, it's where the protein is coming from. And sure yeah. enough, we remove dairy and my skin is clearing up, right? Mm -hmm. You can't refute that with research. Yeah. That actually was a thing that happened. Now, and that's that, probably a female. That's an N of one, which people will say, oh, well, you know, you can't do a scientific study with anecdote of one. But that, I think, happens to more people than we think. And that's yeah. something that we need to look at. But that's kind of on a side note, because we were obviously talking about I know, I know. <laughs> in dairy. Um, so, you know, I think that having higher fat is generally shown in research to uh, be associated with just eating less and being more satiated. And we have to look at, you know, replacing fats with carbs and things like that in terms of disease risk. So, you know, you have to look overall, whether or not you're going to have high fat milk or low fat milk doesn't matter to me, but you have to look at your overall diet. And if that's what's taking you over calorically, or if that's what's causing you to be in a calorie deficit and your goal is fat mm -hmm. loss, then do what is going to be best for you. All right. And then we get into Nicole back to fat since we just went on this whole rant yeah, about dairy, <laughs> but, th but then we get into, all right. So, well, if we're going to reduce saturated fats, what do we replace them with? And what the data shows is that best case scenario, you're replacing them with your essential fatty acids, which are your polyunsaturated fats, fatty acids, which the two most important ones that have a big impact on your body are going to be omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And I will say that even though omega-6 fatty acids are shown to be good for the heart, we eat too many omega-6 fatty acids. And where they come from is they come from refined seed oils. And mm -hmm. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard somebody shit on refined seed oils. And the reason why people generally shit on them is not, they're not bad for you, but we consume too much in relation to omega-3 fatty acids. So your refined seed oils are going to be like canola oil, vegetable oil, safflower oil, uh, give me uh, soybean oil, right? Things like that are going to be predominantly omega-6 fatty acids. Also, a lot of nuts that we eat are going to be predominantly omega-6 fatty acids with, and monounsaturated fatty acids, uh, with the exception of walnuts. So the walnuts are going to be higher in omega-3 than they are going to be in omega-6. I mean, I kind of look at a walnut and it looks like your brain, so it's probably healthy for your brain. 
Uh, I don't know. Nature did that thing where it's like, hey, this is healthy for your brain. So I'm going to make it look like your brain. Like, I don't know how that happened. But the omega six is we generally in this country consume as high because we eat a lot of refined seed oils, because we eat a lot of processed food that has refined seed oils in it. That's why we generally consume like a 40 to one ratio of omega six to omega three, where we really should be wanting to have a one to one ratio and omega three fatty acids are found in fish. And for like vegans and vegetarians, it would be uh, sea algae, because if you think up the food chain, right, you are what you eat. A small fish is going to eat sea algae and get its omega three from sea algae. And then it's going to go up the food chain and then bigger fish are going to eat that. So all fish are going to generally be your fattier fish are generally going to be higher in omega three fatty acids. Now, I will say in terms of fish, it is important from this standpoint to eat wild caught fish and not farm raised fish. And the reason why I've taken this position on this is because wild caught fish, they're eating naturally what's in the ocean and they're going to be higher in omega three fatty acids, whereas farm raised fish, they're feeding them those things that you'll find in refined seed oils, right? They're feeding them soybean. They're feeding them Mm -hmm. corn, right? Like, and I always say this, when was the last time you saw a fish jump out of the ocean, eat some soybeans (laughs) or corn, and then go back and swim off? It doesn't happen. It's not natural what we're doing with farm raised fish. So you're going to spend a pretty penny on your fish that is Atlantic caught or, or wild caught or Pacific, wherever you get your salmon from. I don't know where the fuck it comes from, but you want to have wild caught fish because your fish that you're eating that's farm raised is not going to do it for you in terms of omega three. Now, why these two fatty acids are unique and important is because they balance something in your body called eicosanoids. Eicosanoids are things that control inflammation, immune responses, blood clotting factors, body temperature. They control a lot of things inside of your body. And What happens with blood clotting, for example, this is why omega-3 is shown to have a positive impact on, they, they have, there's a lot of research on if you are somebody who suffered from a heart attack, a myocardial infarction, if you suffered from an MI episode, you are less likely to suffer from another one if you're consuming more omega-3 fatty acids. And the reason be, the reason behind this is because omega-3 decreases blood clotting, which if you get a clot stuck in an artery that's already partially clogged, you're more likely to have a clot get stuck in there. So if you have more clotting factor, then you're more likely to get a blockage in an artery. Whereas omega-6 fatty acids, they increase blood clotting factor. So essentially what happens in the body is everything omega-6 does, omega-3 does the opposite. And it doesn't mean that omega-6 is inherently bad because from a blood clotting perspective, we need our blood to clot. If you cut yourself, clotting stops you from bleeding to death from hemorrhaging, right? So this is where we need a balance between the two. And generally we consume way more omega-6 fatty acids than omega-3 fatty acids. So you'll want to consume more polyunsaturated fats in general, but you're going to want to be conscious of either consuming more fish or supplementing with a fish oil supplement. Although I'll say even in addition to that, when we go into research, eating more fish is more beneficial than supplementing with a supplement. So if you can, a couple times a week, have a fatty piece of fish, that's going to be beneficial for your health. Yeah, it goes right back to balance and balancing your food plate and your the types of proteins that you're eating, fats and carbohydrates. Got to have balance 
in your food plan. And mm-hmm. you can't over it. Here's the thing, Nicole, like you're alluding to. Right. You can't <laughs> over consume things. And the problem that we face is that we eat way too much the refined food things. that has a lot of omega-6 fatty acids and these refined seed oils in it. So we need to be conscious around what we're doing there. Eating fatty fish or taking a fish oil supplement. Like if you know you're not, let's say you don't like fish, then take a fish oil supplement. And let's say you're a vegan or vegetarian, then take a, a an algal supplement, like a sea algae supplement. The same mm-hmm. thing goes for cows. When they eat grains versus grass fed cows, they have a higher omega-3 composition and you'll see it in the fat. And I say this all the time, like the look foods your- that, that look, if you look at the fat yeah. composition of the food that you're eating, yeah. okay. Farm raised fish is gray and then they inject it with a dye to -hmm. make it look pink Yep. because the fat composition is different. Grass fed beef is higher in omega three. When you cook grass fed beef like ground beef, Mm -hmm. if you were to take grass fed ground beef and if you were to take grain fed ground beef and you were to cook it and then you were to refrigerate both of those and you look at both of those Tupperwares. One is going to be a whitish color and the other Mm -hmm. one's going to be like a yellowish orange, the yellowish orange. And you see that in the eggs, too, right? Yeah. Eggs that are uh, like pasture raised eggs that Mm -hmm. just, you know, roam around and eat whatever the fuck they want versus (laughs) versus we're we're feeding them specific seeds. Mm -hmm. They have a a more of an orangey kind of color to the yolk versus a yellow. And there's a significant difference when you look at that. So, yeah, it's to me. That's the healthier one. I always say that when clients start cooking, like if I have clients that don't normally cook for themselves and I'm like, are you looking at what you're making? Like, can you tell the difference when you make different choices, especially in your proteins? There's a huge difference. And and it's funny, you talk about Tupperware. When I was competing, I never really paid much attention to that until I was eating food out of Tupperware containers and, and really paying attention to when I reheated things, what it looked like. And I was like, why is this a different color? But it is really interesting. This is why it's so important, not only to get educated about your food, but to cook your own food, because you would never know that if you aren't really paying attention to that. Yeah. And listen, the flip side is with, you know, again, I'll say beef is still higher in saturated fat. I try to reduce it. I don't eat much beef these days. There was a period of time when I was bodybuilding Yeah, and I, I was eating a ton of beef and I've kind of, I guess like smartened up you're mixing over, it up. over the last few years. Like I eat beef and it's interesting. Anybody that I talk to probably naturally just eats beef at least twice a week. And mm-hmm. I say for me, that's even too much. I would rather you have leaner sources of meat and yeah. then get your fats elsewhere, get your fats. Like if you're eating fish, fattier fish is fine, but for yeah. your meat in general, like ground Turkey, chicken, leaner cuts of leaner fish, whatever, Like I would rather you get your fats elsewhere from nuts and seeds, avocados, uh, you know, good, healthy oils, olive oil. I think that those things are going to be more beneficial from a health perspective than eating a ton of beef fat, because what we do know, obviously, is that saturated fat increases total LDL. We still need to, like I mentioned before, we still need to look at the LDL particle size in terms of research and establish, well, is it as much of a risk as we think it is? But generally speaking, from the information we have, increasing LDL cholesterol is not really a beneficial thing for you. So Mm -hmm. in terms of reducing that, reducing saturated fat and replacing it with polyunsaturated fat is going to be helpful from that perspective. 
And the other thing that we have is monounsaturated fat, which we've talked about. And I'm just going to briefly just say nuts, seeds, avocado, they're going to be higher in monounsaturated fats. Um, and that that's pretty much it, Nicole. That's all I have for fat. I think that covers everything. The recap is, you know, where my current position is on saturated fat is reduce your intake of saturated fat, consume mostly polyunsaturated fats, try and increase your ratio of omega-3 fatty acids to omega-6 fatty acids, eat your monounsaturated fats, don't really worry about them, nuts, seeds, and avocados. Uh, fat doesn't make you fat, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Total calorie intake, if you're eating too much protein or fat or carbs, is going to have an effect on your weight. And from a perspective of science, I know that it's confusing, but I'm trying to deliver you guys the current information that we have in terms of fatty acids and cholesterol and health. And I hope that that's helpful for you. I may change my tune if more information comes out, but at least I'm honest about it. And we're not here speaking in definitive language, because I know a lot of people do. And I think that the individuals that do, if anybody out there is speaking to you in a definitive language, like we absolutely know this, that's bullshit. And you should run for the hills and probably refer all of your friends to the Eat Right Nutrition podcast, because <laughs> we're going to give you information based on the current literature that we have, based on real science, real facts, and real food. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.